Well, this morning we return to our study of the book of Zechariah, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and you want to follow along, we do have some copies available on the back table for you. If you're visiting with us, we are studying the book of Zechariah, uh, this Old Testament prophet. We are in Zechariah chapter 5, and uh, we have unpacked half of this eightfold vision that the Lord gives to the prophet, we think on one evening in the sixth century, to encourage and to challenge God's people At that time, it was the nation of Israel. As they move from exile, from where they had been in Babylon for a generation, and seek to reestablish their lives in the promised land, in the city of Jerusalem. We've seen, as we've kind of begun to unpack these visions, we've seen that this message that the Lord is giving to His people back then is a message that's largely centered around the temple, right? And and around the the rebuilding of this structure that was destroyed when God's enemies came in and carted them off and turned the temple into rubbish. But the temple was not just a building. It was the symbol and the reality of God's dwelling with His people, of His presence with His people. And so a lot of this vision has been about the temple and about this task of rebuilding it. And so... In these very vivid and memorable visions, one vision, but kind of an eightfold vision, we've been taking it vision by vision or part by part, God has communicated a promise of return, a promise of restoration and rebuilding, and a promise of cleansing and the restoring and the giving of new garments, right? And that's where we were two weeks ago with Joshua in his filthy garments, And in this vision, Zechariah sees, he sees these garments taken off of the high priest Joshua, the representative of God's people, and replaced with the filthy garments are these clean, pure garments. And it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. So on the foundation of these promises, these next two visions that we're going to look at today that I'm about to read to you, they seek to answer these questions. And so these are, these are questions that I want you to have kind of in your minds as you hear this vision today or these visions. We're going to look at two of them. The first one is, upon completion of this temple, this building, what will life with the new temple look like for God's people? What's the new temple going to do in the life of God's people? How will it endure How will this new temple that God's people are building in the 6th century, how will it not succumb to the fate of the former temple that was judged and was made into rubble? And then finally, God's people are to be a light, right? We talked about the lampstand, the super menorah. What kind of light will God's people be? Those are the questions, and they sound very like ancient Near Easty questions. They sound like, okay, well, I'm not a Jew, and I'm not in the 6th century. I'm an American or Canadian or whatever. I'm sitting here in 2022, and, and those questions don't sound relevant to me. I hope to tie it together and help you see that they are relevant to you as you think about the temple, as you think about being a light. And so today we move to the next two visions in this eightfold vision. We're almost through these visions Um, And these two are maybe the most bizarre yet. 
and so I'm going to read them to you. Not a long passage, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, but listen as I read. If you're able, it is our tradition to stand for the reading of God's Word here at Ascension out of honor for His Word. So Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is what Zechariah sees. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? That he being the angel. He said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Well, there's a lot here to unpack, so we're just going to jump right in and try to figure out what is going on in this crazy vision, these crazy two visions that Zechariah is given. So I've got two truths for us to meditate on this morning as we walk through this passage. The first one will simply explain what it is that Zechariah sees and what that means. And the second, I hope to at least begin to flesh out for us here in 2022 what the implications of that vision, of these visions are for us here today as God's people. The first truth is this. Where God dwells, sin isn't welcome. Where God dwells, sin isn't welcome. You see, I think this is the overarching picture that the Lord is communicating to his people in these two visions. Yahweh has returned to his people because they have repented. We talked about that way back in chapter 1 of Zechariah. Now as a symbol of that dwelling, of that return of Yahweh, the temple is to be rebuilt and restored. 
But Yahweh must remind his people that there is a danger that still exists for them. Everything is not hunky-dory, as my mom used to say, just because a temple is being raised up once again. And so, Zechariah is shown a flying scroll. Okay, pretty weird. So let's start there. Why is he seeing a scroll? Well, a scroll, of course, scrolls were were common things in the ancient Near East, right? They didn't have bound books. They had scrolls on which things were written. And specifically, scrolls were part of the experience of previous Old Testament prophets. Prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Ezekiel. Both those prophets were told in their visions, in their prophecies, to use scrolls to convey their messages of judgment through the use of scrolls. But wait a second. These are people returning from a land of exile. These are people who have been judged for their sins and now they're back being restored. They've returned to God in repentance. God has returned to them and he's going to manifest that return through the rebuilding of the temple and now they're seeing a scroll and what? Judgment is coming again? You might imagine Zechariah's kind of PTSD as he sees this scroll. He knows what the Old Testament prophet's experience was. What's written on this scroll? Well, there are some things that God's people must never forget. And this scroll is meant to be unforgettable. Okay? So let's talk about the scroll. First of all, it's huge. It's huge. It's 20 by 10 cubits. How big is that? It's 30 by 15 feet. All right, this isn't your uh, compact size, personal size scroll that you're carrying around. No, this is like a billboard. Like when I think of this scroll, when I read this vision, I immediately thought of my childhood and vacationing on the Jersey Shore and seeing these little Cessnas, right? Flying with these huge, I mean, you've seen the ones with like the long banner, but some of them, they have these huge banners that are like two stories high. And three stories long, and they're advertising the casino or or whatever they're advertising, right? And they creep down the beach right off the water as these flying billboards. And that's what immediately came to mind when I see this scroll, when I hear and digest it and think, man, this thing is huge. You can't miss this scroll. And so this flying billboard is coming down from heaven. But secondly, its dimensions are the same dimensions as the holy place. That room in the tabernacle where the lampstand stood, where the table of showbread stood, right outside of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. This was the place where God's priests went in to minister on behalf of God's people to meet God. And the scroll is the same size as that room, the holy place. And then there's the fact that the scroll is two-sided, right? It's written on both sides. Just like the tablets that Moses received on Mount Sinai, written on both sides. So what do all those things come 
in together to convey, they come to convey that this is a covenant document. This is a covenant document. This is a document that's announcing the curse. That word in and of itself is covenantal language. It's a document communicating a curse on a people that have relationship with the living and true God. You see, this is not some out of the blue communication from an unknown deity. This is Yahweh's authority. This is Yahweh's requirements of his law on full display. This is his demands of holiness being once again communicated to God's people. One commentator describes it as a heavenly smart bomb coming out of heaven and it's seeking its target in the community of God's people. And what is its target? The target is the unrepentant, the continuing iniquity of God's people. So that's the purpose, that's the picture and the purpose of the scroll. But what, what's on it? Well, Two particular issues are written out here on the scroll. And they are issues that apparently God's people in the 6th century were already struggling with. Very specific things. We learn about them later in this very book. In chapter 8 of Zechariah, he says this. This is chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. He says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and made for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So we read here two things written on the scroll. The eighth commandment, the curse against the one who steals, And then the one who swears falsely. That could be the ninth commandment. Or it could be the third commandment as well because often that swearing was done in the name of the Lord. You see, these two commands had particular relevance, Zechariah 8 tells us, in the life and in the community of God's people. They were screwing up a bit. But they're also, in a way, representative of all of God's moral law. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? These are the two tables of the law. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. And so in a sense, as we see this flying scroll coming down with these two demands and these two judgments against these two sins, we don't need to think narrowly of just stealing. Even though stealing was a thing, it was an issue in that time. We need to think bigger than that. The point is, such sin must be rooted out from the covenant community because where God dwells, sin cannot. So the first picture that we're given here in this vision is one of destruction. The curse, the consequences of covenant disobedience will enter the houses of such offenders and it won't matter what they're built of, stone, timber, doesn't matter. They're going to be consumed. But there's a second vision. 
that further underscores this truth, and it's even a more bizarre scene. So what's the second thing we see? We talked about the flying scroll. The second thing we see is a basket of iniquity, a bucket of sin, we might say. Okay, now what is going on with the bucket of sin? Well, literally, this is an ephah. This is an ephah. An ephah was a common ancient Near Eastern measuring jar that was used for grain. We see ephahs in other places. We see ephahs in, in the book of Ruth, for instance, where grain is kind of a prevalent thing in that scene, in that setting. Right? An ephah, it would be about five gallons, which makes the, the picture even weirder because there's a woman in this five-gallon basket, in this five-gallon ephah, which that's just distorted and messed up, right? This is a very disturbing scene. And the lifting of this heavy leaden lead over this ephah reveals a person, a woman, who is given a name. She's the personification of wickedness. And so like a genie in a lamp, the lid is slammed back down on her in order to keep her contained. Now lots of questions here. What in the world is going on? Well, let's address some of these questions and let's work backwards. First, why is this a woman? Well, we're not exactly sure. Possibly it's an allusion to the fact that Israel, for generations upon generations, struggled with foreign wives that led to their downfall. As the men, in disobedience to Yahweh, married foreign wives, they were led into idolatry of other nations. Or perhaps it's that specific idolatry that's being pointed out, for female deities were prevalent in this part of the world and in this time. Ashkelon was the goddess of the Philistines. Asherah was the goddess of the Canaanites. And so perhaps that's why it's a woman. Whatever the reason, let me assure you that the Bible, the Scriptures, are not throwing women under the bus. That's not what's going on here. After all, these two agents of Yahweh, and we're not exactly sure what they are, but they who swoop down to do Yahweh's bidding are described as being women themselves, right? Many have thought that these agents of Yahweh are angels. Could be. If they are, this is the only place in the entire Bible where angels are referred to as female. But no matter these female agents, they swoop in to do the Lord's bidding and to take care of this wickedness. Well, let me say this before we move on. Others have made this point. One thing about this person, whether it's a man or a woman named wickedness, doesn't really matter per se to us, but this person in the ephah does give a face to evil. Right? Sin is personal. It's, it's not abstract. Sin is real. It's not theoretical. Do you get what I'm saying? One commentator says this, hell is not populated with sin. It's populated with sinners. And I think at times we would do well 
to remember that. This is not some outside mysterious force. No, sin is us. Wickedness is in all of us. It has a face. But why is it an ephah? Why is it this five-gallon measuring thing for grain? We know why that's the case. Because the ephah was part of trade. It was representative of trade in that day and age. Yahweh spoke to his people using this language in Amos chapter 8 and another minor prophet. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Do you hear what's going on in that passage? God's people in Amos, they can't wait to defraud their customers. They can't wait to lie and to cheat and to steal and to take advantage of others. You see, the ephah is about dishonest business. It's about stealing. And Yahweh hates the exploitation of others, especially the poor. Remember Jesus when he was on earth and he went into the temple and they were selling and the money changers were there and part of his anger and frustration, righteously so, was because these people were swindling the poor. They were taking advantage of God's people. And Jesus says, no more. Where God dwells, no sin, but especially this kind of sin is not welcome. And so in the first vision, we see this picture of destruction. In this vision, we see deportation. The wickedness of people is being taken away, carried away again, out of God's presence, out of the life of God's people, and it's being taken away to the land of Shinar. That's the last thing we've got to figure out. And then we're going to talk about why this matters. Shinar meant two things for God's people. Number one, Shinar was where the Tower of Babel was built. This arrogant attempt by man to usurp God's authority and to usurp his reign. But not just that, Shinar was in Babylon. And Babylon, as we've talked about before, Babylon has come to represent and come to define the kingdom of man, the epitome of human defiance. All that God is against is represented by Babylon. And so this place to where the basket is being exiled to is basically the negative counterpart to Jerusalem. In contrast to the temple where Yahweh dwells comes a temple of wickedness where God is absent. You see, Yahweh has gotten his people out of Babylon, but now he's got to get the Babylon out of his people. If God is here, sin has got to go. Where God dwells, sin isn't 
welcome. That is the picture that is being conveyed by these two visions in visual, disturbing ways. In specific ways to that agricultural culture in the 6th century. So what does it mean for us? We who sit here today. Well, it certainly is, and I think we can view it as this, it's a picture of the end of all things, in a sense. A future that lay not ahead of just the 6th century, but still lay ahead of us. Right? That's the beautiful implication that we all long for. That wickedness is no match for Yahweh. That He will carry it once and for all away from His people. And we'll never have to deal with it again. That's the future that awaits His people. Those who hide themselves in Jesus, in Him. But I think more than that, this vision, these visions also are for us here and now. Yes, they give us hope for the future and they remind us of that vision. But they're for us here and now. And that's the second truth. We're almost done. God dwells in you. So you must deal with your sin. Where God dwells, sin isn't welcome. That was the first thing. But God dwells in you. And therefore, you've got to deal with your sin. Well, maybe we should back up and first ask this question. Does God dwell with you? Does God dwell in you? He does if you are His. And you are His if you haven't neglected His means of escape. The escape from destruction, the escape from deportation that our sin deserves before a holy God. The one who we've sung about, the one who you've heard about already in this service, the one who will end the service with Jesus. Jesus was destroyed as He bore our sins on that cross. Jesus was cast out of the city, outside of the city gates, outside of the Father's presence as He hung upon that cross for you and me. And if you look to Him, if you believe in Him, this is the work of God, to believe in the One you've sent. Then God dwells in you. And Jesus bore those covenant curses so that you don't have to. Listen again to Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law. But Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There it is. There it is. Not only the wonder of gospel forgiveness, but the glory of gospel transformation. For as recipients of the Spirit by faith through Jesus, we are now the new temple of God. You are the place of God's dwelling. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells 
in you. Therefore, sin must not be welcome in your life either. You see, I think one of the most important implications of this vision for us today is our own pursuit of holiness. Peter said to the church, you shall be holy for I am holy. What is holiness? Well, short answer, holiness is striving to be like Jesus. Longer answer, let me give you a longer answer. You can think of holiness to employ a metaphor as the sanctification of your body. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes are turned away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. The mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip, slander, or speak what is coarse or obscene. The spirit is earnest, steadfast, and gentle. The heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness, patient instead of irritable, kindness instead of anger, humility instead of pride, and thankfulness instead of envy. The feet move to the lowly and away from conflict, division. The hands are quick to help those in need and ready to fold in prayer. This is the anatomy of holiness. Well, gosh, there's a lot to, there's a lot to think about there. A lot to unpack. More than just stealing. More than just bearing false witness. We don't have time to go through all of this. I just want to ask a question. Are we sensitive? Are we mindful to these things? Are we striving in holiness? Are we allowing God's word to shape us and to form us? I'm not sure we are sometimes. We're busy. We're moral, more or less. But God says, be holy. You're called to be different. So how do we do this? Well, that's another sermon. It's another whole sermon series. But let me close with just two practical encouragements. One, live a life of repentance. Live a life of repentance. You're not going to stop sinning. And so you can't stop repenting. You must regularly come face to face with your sin. Feel godly sorrow over it. Confess it to God and others. Rest in the gospel and pray for the grace to strive forward. Live a life of repentance. But then secondly, lean into the gospel. Lean into the gospel. As you face your sin, you don't do it in utter despair. You do it reminded of the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are safe and secure in the Father's care. You strive to be holy because you already are holy. You're declared as such because of Jesus and because of your identification with Him. And so the quieting our hearts section that was up on the screen briefly, that was in the PDF that was sent out to you, it's from a sermon by the 19th century Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers. And the sermon was called, it's the greatest sermon title ever, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Great sermon. If you ever want to read it, Google it, read it. It's great. But he says this, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. 
and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. That is, the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel. And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. This is one of the secrets of the Christian life. And that's why every week we talk about the gospel, because every week, every day, our lives are to be about abiding in Christ, not doing it on our own, recognizing we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can deal with our sin, we can cry out and put to death the deeds of the body. Oh man, I want to keep going, but i got to leave Pastor Ed some time. Let me just end with this. What kind of light will we be? How does God's presence in us show itself to the world? Where God dwells, sin cannot. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for these vivid, crazy visions that you gave to your servant. Father, we hear your call on us as your people to reflect who you are, to be holy as you are, to be holy for that is who we are as those who are in Jesus. Oh, Father, we need your grace. We need the power of your Spirit. Fill us anew, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.